The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's do turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 6. If you've been with us, you haven't missed anything. We're moving through the book of Hosea but not looking at every single verse. And we want to look at essentially chapters 4 through 7, but focusing in on chapter 6 as we continue in this book. So I want to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution, and Israel is defiled. Hosea's life, and especially his marriage to Gomer, was a living picture to the nation of Israel, of God's great love and mercy to to God's unfaithful bride. Last week we saw how Hosea brought Gomer back, how he bought her out of slavery that she had apparently fallen into in some way after she had been unfaithful to him and how Hosea purchased her back and received her back and loved her again as his wife. And how God used the prophet's marriage to powerfully speak to an adulterous nation. A nation that was adulterous in the sense of being unfaithful to her God. And beginning in chapter 4, God through the prophet calls the nation to turn from their sin and to return to him. There are a number of passages which do this. In fact, chapter 4 begins with God charging the nation as if in court with their sins, bringing these accusations about them, pointing out their offenses against their covenant God. And God also describes the disciplines, the judgments he's brought upon them that he will bring upon them if they continue to turn away from him. 
And yet, as we saw last week, God's covenant love pursues them as Hosea pursued his unfaithful wife. And tonight we focus on chapter 6, where in the midst of these accusations and these declarations of the discipline that God is bringing on them and will bring on them, there is this gracious call to repentance. And we, we want to think tonight about repentance and how we are called to repentance as well. The first thing we want to look at from our text is that repentance is a response to God's grace. Repentance is a response to God's grace. Chapter 6 begins with this invitation, Come, let us return to the Lord. In a sense, the prophet is calling the nation to join him in a humble prayer and spirit and life of repentance. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. The repentance that Israel was called to was like Hosea's wife, needing to turn back to her husband. And the nation of Israel was like Gomer, Hosea's wife. She was far from God and needed to turn back from her wayward ways. And repentance is a response to God's pursuing grace in our lives. I hope that you don't think of repentance as penance. There's a big difference between the two. Penance is is more or less something that I do to try to atone for my sin or something I do to try to somehow twist God's arm and get him to bless me, something that I do to earn atonement or blessing or forgiveness. And that's a far cry from biblical repentance, gospel-oriented, gospel-based repentance flows out of the fact that God has loved me with an everlasting love in Christ. Just like God set his covenant love upon the nation of Israel in Hosea's time. And so, based on God's love to me, I respond. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door of the castle at Wittenberg. And and the very first one of these had to do with the fact that all of life is repentance. And that's not a despairing thought. It's not as if, oh, all of life is repentance because uh, we never quite get our repentance right. No, it's an encouraging thought because the idea is that repentance is the way of progress and growth in our Christian walk, in our walk with God. It's a response to God's grace and his gracious invitation of the gospel. So when Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls. That's, a, that's an invitation that's very similar, in a sense, to Hosea 6, 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He will heal us. He will restore us. Jesus is issuing that same gospel call of repentance and faith in him. 
Revelation 22:17, the same kind of invitation there at the end of the Bible. Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That invitation to any sinner to come and receive the free offer of salvation in Christ. And so repentance is a response to God's grace. Probably all of you know the parable of the prodigal son and the idea that this son who, who wants his inheritance and he takes it and his father gives it to him and he, he goes off to a far land and he squanders it. He lives in, in this riotous kind of life and blows it all. And, of course, he ends up feeding the pigs and wishing he, he could eat the slop that he gives the pigs. Even that looks good to him. And he, and he comes to himself Jesus says, and he decides to go to his father's house. There's this turning, this wonderful description of when the son finally comes down his father's, the lane into his home, so to speak, and his father runs to greet him. That father's welcoming love, the father's heart of love, that's a picture of the love of God. And that is the basis for our repentance. It's because of the gospel, the grace that Jesus Christ loved us and died for us and shed his blood that we respond in heartfelt repentance. There's that famous scene in the uh, Broadway show Les Mis, Les Miserables. Maybe some of you have seen that, that uh, Jean Valjean is this thief and he steals these uh, silver candlesticks or whatever they are from the priest and, of course, he's caught by the police. But when the police drag him before the priest, the priest says, Oh, I see that you have him, and uh, he forgot to take the other candlesticks that I gave him. And, and, and he uh, essentially gets him off the hook. And the whole point of that is that then for the rest of his life, Jean Valjean was leading this life of repentance because of this grace shown to him. It's a picture of the gospel. So repentance is a response to God's grace. Secondly, we learn repentance is God-centered. Notice the second half of verse 1. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Repentance sees sin as an offense against a holy God. Repentance is not a man-centered thing. It's not just seeing sin as something that bothers me, makes me look bad, something that makes my life difficult in some way because it disrupts relationships with others in my life. That may be the case. But if our repentance is simply because of the inconvenience or the consequences or the brokennesses that result from our own sin and our own life, then our repentance is still centered around me and not God. Here in the text, the prophet Hosea is speaking about the discipline that God brings. We read some of it in verses 4 and 5 and 6 about God dealing with them in severe discipline. And chapter 5 has a lot of that. There's a description at the end of chapter 5 about this invading army, this military defeat that's going to come, and uh, there's going to be discipline in the life of the nation. And that's 
what he's talking about when he talks about he has torn us to pieces. It's like a wild animal coming in and, and tearing them up. But he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. God is the sovereign one here. And Hosea is pointing the Israelites and saying, you must realize God is sovereign over what you as a nation have been experiencing. And during Hosea's ministry, over decades in which he preached the word of God, the nation descended into increasing chaos and confusion and economic disaster during this time. As God brought his discipline into their lives, he was tearing them, you would say. He was injuring them. He was their rightful king and their Lord. And repentance is a sincere humbling of ourselves before God and recognizing who he is and who we are before him. There is a bitterness that comes from turning away from God. And the Israelites had experienced it to a large extent. There was all of this increasing economic uncertainty and military uncertainty about Assyria coming down and destroying them. There was this bitter fruit of sin in their lives, God's discipline. But there's a real problem about our repentance if our repentance is just an attempt to get rid of the bitterness of sin or the consequences of sin, we might say. We must see our sin as a sin against God. I remember in sixth grade that I was called to the principal's office one day, and I was the captain of the patrols, so I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? You know, I had never been called in there before, and Another friend of mine was called. It turned out that someone had thought we had soaped all the windows of the school the night before. Well, we had actually gone through the playground of the school the night before, and someone saw us there, and we happened to see who had been soaping the windows of the school, but we didn't do it. So we told the truth. Thankfully, we hadn't done anything wrong. But at our Boy Scout troop that night, the seventh graders who actually did soap the windows of the school were there. And they had found out who had squealed on them, I guess. Somehow it was my friend who got the brunt of their wrath. But uh, they had been in the principal's office after we had been called from junior high school down the street. I'm sure they were repentant before the principal. But after the Boy Scout meeting, they weren't really repentant with us. And uh, we got the brunt of their wrath because they had been caught. What they had been upset about is not so much... The crime, but being caught, that bothered them. And so we were in hot water because of that. That's a far cry from the example of David in Psalm 51, where David is repenting and confessing his sin. And there's that very powerful line that when he says, against you, you only have I sinned. He's speaking to the Lord. And certainly David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against his wife. And, and yet, he's saying, compared to anyone else, Lord, against you have I sinned. Reminds me of Paul on the Damascus Road when the risen Lord appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting that Saul was persecuting Christians, but Jesus speaks to him as if primarily 
And ultimately, it's against Jesus Christ. And it was ultimately a sin against God. And so repentance is a response to God's grace, but it's also a God-centered thing in our lives. It's oriented towards seeing our sin as against God, and, and it's a sin against his rightful lordship of our lives. Of our lives, He tears us to pieces. In a sense, he does that with discipline in our lives. He does that with his word, but he heals us, and he binds up our wounds as we acknowledge our sin is against him. Thirdly, we see that repentance is the way of life. This relates to verses 1 and 2, where we see this description of God binding up our wounds. But then in verse 2, it says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Now, there's speculation. Some commentators take the view that this is somehow an allusion to the resurrection of Christ. Most do not take that view. But most take the view that what he's talking about is the analogy or the illustration of someone who is injured either by a wild animal or possibly in warfare, an injured soldier being uh, hurt, injured, and yet being bound up, and then in a few days being healed. And speaking about the fact that God is at work to revive and restore. And then there's that beautiful phrase at the end of verse 2, that we may live in his presence. What a beautiful description that the way of repentance is the way of life. Repentance is not something that earns life from God or earns the presence of God, but the result of the restoration that God brings through the instrumentation of repentance is a restored relationship to God. He binds up our wounds. He restores us. He revives us that we might live in his presence. Hosea is telling us that repentance is not a bitter pill in a sense. It's the way of life. It's the way of ultimate joy with God. Doesn't this bring to mind a text like Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul in verses 1 and 2 and 3 describes the state of all of us apart from Christ, dead in transgressions and sins, following the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, literally children of wrath. And then in verse 4, there's that great turn where it says, but God, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. There's that idea of life through Jesus Christ. And we know that we enter into that life, we receive it through repentance and faith. Well, the same thing is being said in Hosea chapter 6 that we may live in his presence, this idea of life. The more you know God, the more you have a true biblical sense of who God is, and the more you are aware of your sin, you will be repentant. A true knowledge of God leads us to 
be actively repenting of the sin we see that still remains in our lives. Repentance is the way of life. And the more you meditate and glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did for you and for me, the more you want to repent and the more you long to turn away from everything that displeases God. Yes, there are many ups and downs. Yes, our hearts often are dull and cold. But that is the general progress of the Christian. As we learn more about Christ, as we meditate on the cross, we more and more long to exercise genuine and true repentance in our lives. You see, the way of repentance is not a burdensome way. It's a joyful way. The other week we had at the men's stakeout, some of the men in the church had their totally fixed up antique cars. And some of these men have restored, maybe some of you are here, restored many cars over the years, and they love that. And for them, it's a joy to do that kind of a thing. It's for someone like me who really knows nothing about cars, that would be just such a burden. It would be, you know, for me, I'm the kind of guy who likes to mow the lawn, likes to pull the weeds. You know, that's something straightforward for me. And it must be my farmer's genetic background from my dad's side of the family that just put me in the yard. Patty knows on my day off, you know, just put me in the yard and I'll be fine. That's all I want to do. And if you put an antique car in front of me that needed to be fixed or repaired, this would be a headache to me. This would not be a way of joy at all. Oh, that's what, you know, that's what makes the world go round. Everybody's different in that way. Some of you wives, you know, some of you love to cook. Some of you love to sew. Some of you love to clean the house, maybe. And others are saying, what? I wouldn't want to do that. Some of you probably like to shop. You know, I'll, I'll vote for that. But my point is here, the way of repentance for someone who is born of the Spirit is the way of life. It's the way of joy. It's the way we want to walk with God. Not that we're always like that. Not that we always rise and and have that kind of a right biblical mindset. No, there are certainly ups and downs in the Christian life and walk. But fundamentally in our hearts, as we get to know God, we see our sin more and we long to repent over our sin. We long to live in God's presence as we turn to him. So repentance is the way of life. And finally, we see that repentance is a turning to the Lord from the heart which shows up in specific ways. Repentance is a turning to the Lord from the heart which shows up in specific ways. Verse 3 says, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Now, this theme of acknowledging the Lord is a repeated one in the book of Hosea. Again and again, Hosea calls the people to acknowledge the Lord. It has this sense of submit to his lordship, give him your life, Acknowledge who he is and live before him as your rightful covenant Lord and King. The problem with Israel during Hosea's time 
was that they were far from this. Their hearts were far from God, and there were many specific ways in which they were not repenting and turning to him. In chapter 5, at verse 4, we read this. Hosea says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Notice that theme. They, they do not acknowledge the Lord. What did it mean there? It means that, that their deeds were wrong. Their deeds were evil. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. So their outward specific deeds were evil. And a spirit of prostitution is in their heart. Notice that theme of prostitution and adultery that we see in Hosea again and again. He's saying their hearts are are adulterous hearts. Then in chapter 6, we read this at at verse 6. The same kind of thing. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. There's that theme, acknowledging God. And he's saying, they may offer their sacrifices, they may come and offer burnt offerings, but there's no mercy, there's no heart of love for God, there's no acknowledgement of God, there's no heart submission to the lordship of God in their lives. And so the Israelites of Hosea's day were going through the motions. Of course, they had strayed far at this point, at this point, The Israelites were essentially worshiping God, Yahweh, and Baal, a false god, as the same god. They were even getting them mixed up. And they were going to the high places of Israel, and they were worshiping Baal and God at the same time. Of course, by doing so, they weren't really worshiping the true God at all. They were only worshiping false gods. And their hearts were far from the true God. They were going through worship to trying to get what they wanted in terms of fruitful crops, rain, military success, and security. and In other words, they were just playing their religious games to try to get God or the gods, whoever were out there, to bless them. And Hosea condemns them. Two of the areas especially that it's interesting to think about and then make the connection to our culture and our lives— come to mind here. One is that the Israelites were finding their security in human means, especially military security and alliances with nations around them. They were looking for security in something other than their true God. And then they were worshiping other things. They were idolatrous. Listen, listen, if you turn back to chapter 4, just let me read some of this. It's very interesting what they were doing. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. And here, they, here Hosea indicts the priests. The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. Isn't that what we hear in Romans 1, that refrain, exchanging their glory for the lie? So the priests were leading people astray. And down in verse 10, if we read some more from chapter 4, they will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not increase because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. 
They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray, and they are unfaithful to their God. And Hosea goes on about this, describing their idolatry. And so they didn't acknowledge God in the sense that they worshipped, they delighted in, they valued idols. Baal, one of the preeminent false gods, idols that they worshipped and served. And so when we ask, well, what would be the equivalent things in our lives, in our day and age? All we have to do is ask ourselves, well, what do we tend to put our trust in? And what do we tend to delight in and value and worship? What do we put our trust in over than God, from God? Maybe it's our money, our abilities, our education. Maybe it's our government. You know, that's been the theme of the last two years. Trust government to take care of you, cradle to grave. It's very easy, and all of us, in some ways, fall into trusting something other than God. Or we could ask the question, what do we delight in? You know, we're a nation that entertains ourselves so much. We delight in sports. We delight in our, in our team winning. Or maybe we delight in our appearance or new things to buy or our house or our car. There are so many things that we delight in other than God. And so to make the application to us, repentance we're seeing here must be from the heart in acknowledging God and that it will show up in specific ways. It must be from the heart or will not be genuine. And it must be specific or it will only be theoretical. Let me read some examples from an article by Tim Keller on true repentance. And he's saying, Think about what gospel repentance is like. And he's talking about George Whitfield and using George Whitfield's regular order for repentance, where Whitfield wrote, uh, God, give me a deep humility and a burning love, a well-guided zeal and a single eye, and then let men and devils do their worst. Keller is saying, okay, I'm going to take George Whitfield's order for examining his heart. And he does these, this in these four areas of, of humility and love. But let me just give you one example. Deep humility versus pride. Have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? Then he says, if that's the case, if you've uh, looked down on anyone in the last day, if you've been too stung by criticism that someone has given you, or if you've felt snubbed or ignored in some way, repent like this, Keller says. Consider the free grace of Jesus until I sense, A, decreasing disdain, since I am a sinner too. In other words, I will disdain others less as I meditate on Christ. And B, decreasing pain over criticism, since I should not value human approval over God's love. In light of his grace, I can let go of the need to keep up a good image. It is too great a burden and now unnecessary. Consider free grace until I experience grateful, restful joy. Let me just give you one more. Keller says, burning love versus indifference. Have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Am I justifying myself by caricaturing 
in my mind someone else. That means, you know, in our mind we say, oh, they're just really bad, and, and we kind of make a caricature of them. He says, have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed and indifferent and inattentive to others? Repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus Christ until there is no coldness or unkindness. Think of the sacrificial love of Christ for you. And also, no impatience. Think of his patience with you. And also, no indifference. Consider free grace until I show warmth and affection. God was infinitely patient and attentive to me out of grace. You see where Keller is going with this. What a helpful way to examine our hearts and lives. Repentance is a turning to the Lord from the heart, which shows up in specific ways. And yet, yet verse 4 ends with the promise of God's grace to us. He says, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. Verse 3, as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. As you live a life of genuine, gospel-based, God-oriented repentance, you will find that this life is the way of blessing. And God is promising here his presence. He's promising to draw near. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. Do you think the sun's going to rise tomorrow? Absolutely. God is faithful. He is faithful to let the sun rise, and he is faithful to respond in grace as we repent. He will come to us like the winter rains, rains, like the spring rains. He's talking about seasonal rains in Israel that regularly came. I know some of you have dry lawns, and you're looking forward to maybe rain in the next 24 or 48 hours. That, that imagery of rain as a blessing, Scripture emphasizes that. And Hosea is saying, God will come with blessing as we humble ourselves in repentance, as we turn to him. God's faithful love is like the rain that will water a dry and parched soul. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way of repentance that is not some bleak and dreary and despairing way that we try to do penance for our sin in some way and make ourselves acceptable to you. Thank you that the way of repentance is a response to your love that pursues us, even in our adulterous love for the world, even in our idolatry that still besets us so easily. Thank you that you've set your love upon us, that you have called us to yourself, and that you will continue the good work you've begun. And so help us this week as we meditate on Jesus Christ and his cross to be repenting anew to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.